welcome back to the Don't Stop Me Now podcast. I am your host, Jennifer Vaughn. Hope you are all doing well. I'm doing pretty great. I cannot complain. I've uh, recently been doing some home renovations. I have new vinyl flooring in my master bathroom and my daughter's, I guess, slash son's bathroom, although he doesn't ever use that. He uses mine and so do the girls for the most part, but um, they have no more carpet and I have no more carpet in our bathrooms, which may seem really strange, but I know when I moved into a house with my parents years ago, it was a brand new home. They had selected carpet for the bathrooms and it didn't seem weird. It just, I don't know, it never did. So when I moved into this house, this house is a long story. I used to own this house. Um, and then I went through my divorce and it was sold to the nicest man in the whole world, George Ow Jr., who's a philanthropist in this area. And um, he bought it from me and then uh, it was a short sale and then rented it back to me. Shh, don't tell anybody. And so I've been here ever since. So I used to own the home. I've been here since 2004 and I rent it, and it's very reasonable. He's made my life doable in this area, thankfully. And it's because he knows my story, and it's because he's felt passionate about what I was doing with my advocacy, and um, I just, you have no idea. I just cannot thank him enough. Yeah, I've been in this house since 2004, so that, what does that make that? Um, 17 years. Wow. And so it still feels like my house, even though I rent it. I wanted to do these renovations and um, my ex-husband is a carpenter so thankfully labor is free and so he's been helping me put these in and they just look fabulous so i'm just so stoked about it vinyl flooring is the best it's really inexpensive it's a home depot fix i think i did my master bathroom for under 200 dollars. really really reasonable and it looks amazing i mean my bathrooms look like they're straight out of Pottery Barn now. They look so nice. And it's really nice to stand on that flooring instead of carpet. <laughs> carpet felt a little weird in there. I don't know how I lived with that for so long, but it's fixed. So I'm really, really happy about it. I'm going to post some pictures on my Instagram, my personal Instagram, which is at Jennifer Levon, L-E-I-G-H. That's my personal Instagram, and of course I have my HIV Instagram, which is at Jennifer Vaughn HIV. So they are separate, and I don't really post too much personal stuff on my HIV account. It's mainly now on the Jennifer Lee Vaughn account. So you're welcome to join me on that if you'd like. Shifting gears a little bit, I want to thank those who have listened to my most recent podcast from last week, and some of you took the time to write some personal thoughts about what your take on all of it was, and this is in regards to the suicide of van lifer Lee McMillan. Um, it's been about a month since she died, and you know, not knowing her, but having access to her life before her death on YouTube is quite unique in itself and I've been deep diving into her videos with Max. Of course she had a channel with her boyfriend. It was called Max and Lee. All the videos are still there and accessible and I'm just seeing things so differently. It's really interesting to be able to look back knowing that she was at a point where she just couldn't take anymore and so you're trying to somehow piece together something you're trying to see something in those videos with her and him you know it did lead to a breakup she did break up with him I speak about this more on the last podcast but 
I don't know. I feel like I see some stuff. I feel like um, this YouTubing, you know, as a couple, well, they had been van lifing on their own without YouTube involvement at all. And then they were encouraged by Eamon and Beck, this other van life couple, to do the YouTubing. And I think it really changed everything for them. I think they would have been just fine had they not pursued this this direction because once you're throwing a camera in each other's faces, it's cha- it changes everything. It changes the dynamic of your relationship. And then there's all this creative control. And I think that was becoming an issue. You know, it's, it's interesting to watch, but I really think Max had taken this role of um, being in kind of in charge of how he wanted the channel run. And I think, I think it was causing problems between the two of them. You know, I don't know if we'll ever know. And does it really matter at this point? No, she's not here. But it it's just, you know, it's, you just want to find some kind of answer, because it just, is so it's so shocking that she took her life and you're just trying to figure it all out like what really led to this and um but yeah I see that he and I you know I'm sorry (laughs) the van life channel that they had was it's their names Max and Lee and Aki and you know the dog's cute I love dogs don't get me wrong but it's his dog and the dog probably sheds like crazy you know and she has to act like this is like her favorite thing, but it's kind of like his kid. And a lot of times I feel like he says nicer things about the dog than he does about her. He's like really defends that dog to no end. And the dog has created some issues. Like he bit their drone and, you know, is that fine? If he broke it, is that financially her issue also? Things like that make me wonder, you know, he fell in some water with a backpack on because of the dog that was jumping in water and scratching people because he was trying to save all of them. Of course, Max found the whole thing very endearing, but, you know, it created this situation where their equipment almost was ruined because of the dog, <laughs> you know, and so Lee is a little frustrated because she just spent three months at home trying to make money so she could come back on this trip. So she's doing all of this extra to like keep the whole YouTube story going and she comes back and his dog, you know, he falls in the water with the backpack and the equipment. I think the equipment ended up being okay, but you know, he even said Lee's a little frustrated right now. You know, I'm like, he's got a big smile on his face, of course, cause he, well, maybe that's just who he is, but you know, of course you don't want to lead on that. There's, you know, anything truly um, bad going on. Cause that's not what this channel is about. It's about, you know, van life and positivity and living this nomadic life and how great it is. And so they definitely don't share the negative aspect of it. But I <laughs> I know if it was me, I'd be pissed. So anyways, I just, it's interesting to watch these videos. Every time Owen comes down in the evening, he's like, are you seriously watching them again? I'm like, I know. I'm like, I can't stop watching these videos. I'm just, they have a long or a huge catalog of videos. They, it was two years worth. I think they were putting a video out maybe once a week. So I'm just, I'm just catching up. I don't know. I find it interesting. So, um, but you know what they never talk about in these videos is their sex life. Like, I want to know what it's like to have to have sex in a, a van wherever you're parked. Like that's almost close enough to just having sex, you know, in public. It's not that far off. And, but this is their home. But I think if you were in a car and a cop came by and you were having sex in your car, you'd, that's illegal. 
So technically, where do they draw the line? Is I mean, I guess it's not illegal because you can't see inside. I don't know. I just, I find that part fascinating and none of these couples talk about it at all. Or, you know, if you want to get really technical, what happens after they're done? Like, I'm sorry, but I like to use the restroom. You know, I like to freshen up. That doesn't really get to happen in a van. I don't know what the, I guess there's a lot of wet wipes. I don't know. But I just think, oh, what if you get a, like, a bladder infection? You know, you get some kind of UTI because it's, you're living in these quarters where it's a little bit dirty and you don't get to shower every day. And, um, you know, things happen. And, and then do you have medication available where I just, I'm thinking of like, Oh my God, a bladder infection out in the middle of nowhere. Like how awful that would be. Okay. (laughs) I could go on and on about that. I find that whole way of life. So fascinating. I could, I couldn't handle it, but I love watching it. So, um, okay. Well, I think that's a good segue into introducing my next guest. Earlier this week, I had the absolute pleasure of speaking to author and sex and culture critic, Ella Dawson, who became internet famous a few years back for her early blogs talking about her journey with herpes, which shortly after led to her now very popular TED Talk on herpes. So this conversation, by the way, deals with sexual topics that are very graphic in nature at times, so please be aware in case little ears are near. All right, I am so happy to share this extraordinarily enlightening interview with you. I guarantee you will learn something new, and you will actually learn something new about me. I haven't been totally, totally out about this, so, but I feel okay with it. I think I'm fine. All right, I bring you Ella Dawson. Thank you so much for joining me today, Miss Ella Dawson, and taking the time to talk about this, I'm going to say, quote, unquote, taboo topic, because it should not be taboo, but it is very taboo. So I know a lot of people will find comfort in um, your knowledge and your journey with herpes and and your advocacy as well. So um, welcome, welcome, welcome. I, you don't even know, I've wanted to talk to you, and I just thought, I'm going to just reach out and ask her, because... I have a feeling she'll say yes. And I, it's funny because I told Eric, I need to tell you the little backstory here. So he told me about you um, a couple years ago. He said, you need to watch this TED talk, this girl, listen to what she says. Like, cause he's always felt this way about HIV with me is that if you talk about it, it, it takes all of that, you know, secrecy away and that stigma. He just told me, he's like, you need to watch this TED talk. And so I put you on and I was just like, oh, I love what she did. I was like so excited. And I, and you know, full disclosure, Ella, I don't talk about it a lot, but I have herpes also. And it was not, yeah. And I did not focus on it. I never have. It was you talking on your TED talk that has made me feel more comfortable talking about it. And I still don't talk about it that much, but it was really your TED talk that made me feel like, you know, I can talk about this a little bit more. I don't know why it feels harder for me to talk about herpes, but it does. Okay. I want to know all about you. Like, I don't even know where you're sitting right now. I don't even know where you live. Where, where are you? (laughs) I am, uh, I am in Brooklyn, New York. I, yeah, I'm sitting in the tiny studio that I live in with my boyfriend and, uh, yeah, I'm 28. I write on the internet and I'm herpes positive. Yay. Okay. Oh, wow. You're all the way to New York. Well, thank you. So it's uh, about three o'clock your time right now. Okay. So you were diagnosed how long ago? How old were you? 
Uh, I was about to turn 21, so about seven years ago. And uh, yeah, it was a really horrible 21st birthday present. I was a just ending the jun- my junior year of college. And what happened? How did you know? Were there any signs? Yeah, so I, uh, I had just started seeing this guy and um, about three weeks into our relationship, I woke up super early, which is unlike me, especially then I could sleep in until four in the afternoon if I didn't set an alarm. Um, I woke up at like 7am, just super uncomfortable. And uh, I grabbed a hand mirror and did some poking around and saw some, some bumpies where there aren't supposed to be bumpies. And um, I think a lot of folks who have, uh, who have vulva have, have mm-hmm. seen weird things happen from time to time. So my mm-hmm. hope was that it was just some kind of um, infected hair follicle or some weird kind of yeast infection, but it was painful, which is not, not normal. And mm-hmm. so I called the student clinic, the health clinic, and made an appointment for later that day. And they, the sweet, sweet nurse who was on duty, who I'm actually still in email contact with because she was just so nice. Um, mm-hmm. She, yeah, she took one look and was like, this is, hate to break it to you, this seems like a classic case of genital herpes. And they took a culture and it came back a few days later positive. So mm-hmm. uh, it was not a pleasant experience. Um, mostly because of the psychological impact. It's, it's a really disturbing diagnosis to receive. Mm-hmm. Um, I, people just don't really know that much about herpes. You hear a lot of jokes about it, obviously, but most folks don't know just how common it is, um, what it actually looks like to have herpes, the fact that a lot of people have herpes and are asymptomatic carriers. Um, there was just so much misinformation that I've, I'd absorbed. And it just devastated me emotionally, um, really shook my confidence, uh, changed my relationship to my body for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was not, it was not fun. It was, it was not a fun experience getting diagnosed. And most of the impact, like that first outbreak was painful and lasted about two weeks. And most mm-hmm. people say the first outbreak is the worst one, which has definitely been true in my experience. Um, but, but the psychological impact was just awful, just horrifying. Same here. Totally. I thought my life was over. I thought the person that I was with who I contracted it from, I would have to marry him because who else would want me basically. Why do you think that is that when people hear this diagnosis of herpes, they feel that devastation? Well, I think there's just so much misinformation and powerful stereotypes around herpes. Like I, the only thing I knew about herpes was seeing horrifying slideshows of symptoms in high school abstinence only sex ed so my Mm. only frame of reference was it's this horrible condition that turns you into a leper or it's a joke in television it's a joke in the hangover it's saying some it's i knew that it was incurable because Mm -hmm. that's the joke people make and they compare it to glitter and that it never goes away um and i i had no idea that outbreaks were a thing. Like, I, I think I had always assumed that once you had herpes, you just always had sores at all times. Like, I had no idea how herpes functioned. I knew all of these awful stereotypes about the type of person who would get herpes. So I associated it with people who are quote unquote irresponsible or promiscuous and, and uh, dishonest. Like, there's all of this garbage that we associate with different types of STIs that are rooted in ignorance and slut shaming and often Mm -hmm. a lot of racism and classism. Like Mm -hmm. there's so many layers to why we, 
judge people with STIs. And I think herpes, because it's incurable um, and because it's not necessarily life-threatening either, it's like people feel safe joking about it. But yeah, it's just, it's a mess. And it's, it's something that even now people are still really ignorant about. Yeah, I feel like it seemed, I remember my first thoughts of what herpes were. Again, the slideshows in high school during sex ed, they show you the worst pictures possible, basically. Mm -hmm. The word itself, I don't know why it comes off. It doesn't sound nice. I don't know. I don't like the word herpes. I wish they would find a better word for it. Um, But I remember there was someone living close with me um, in my family. Well, no one's going to care. It's my stepbrother. So anyways, he was older than me and he had it. And I remember my mom saying she was concerned about me using the same towels as him because it was considered dirty. You know, it was this dirty thing. And here I ended up going to college and same thing. It was my first boyfriend for me. It was first boyfriend. It was college. Um, Yeah. First sexual experience. It was literally two months, three months into our, you know, being together and I had something that showed up on my inner labia, right where I pee. And it looked mm-hmm. like, um, it looked like, like a white jelly belly, like half of it kind of, you know, on, it was <laughs> yeah. on either side and it hadn't broken yet. It was a blister and, mm-hmm. um, and it did break. And I remember the pain was excruciating. It was like, uh, like acid on an open cut. And I remember having to take, I mean, I'm going to do graphic here. I had to take wet toilet paper to hold myself open so I could pee because I was like, my legs were shaking. It hurt so bad. This to me was like, this was my first sexual experience. And now this is what I'm going through. You know, this is what, this is what I'm getting. Like, it's like, this is your gift, Jennifer. This is what you get for having sex. You know, it was like, this is going hand in hand with my first boyfriend and everything. Like, and so I'm associating sex with something like I'm being punished. Obviously there was that feeling and just feel, you know, gross. And of course, what was really interesting is I went to the health center, they did a culture. And I mean, I don't think the timing could have been more perfect for the culture. I remember it being very painful because it was the first breakout, you know, it was the cotton swab right directly on the sore. And I remember just, it was horrible. And she said, you know, I'm going to tell you this looks like herpes, but if it comes back negative, I'm still going to tell you it's herpes. Yeah. (laughs) And it came back negative. And you know what? I was asymptomatic for a long time after that. And I wanted to believe in my head that there was some kind of error. So I went along and just sort of thought, you know, in my blissful state that I didn't have it. I'm like, I'm just, you know, I don't think it was that because there was nothing happening for years after. And then there'd be a little something and I'd be like, Oh God. And it's just that whole feeling all over again. Like, yeah, it's, you know, it all comes back the shame and this, you feel terrible about yourself. So yeah. And then I finally eventually got a blood test and it confirmed it. And it was right before I, it was with my father of my kids. And I told him, look, I turn it's positive for herpes. And I thought he was going to leave me and I was so upset Mm. and he didn't. And, you know, all was fine, but okay enough about me, but yes, traumatic for sure. And I know people reach out to me through advocacy that have a very hard time getting this diagnosis. Um, So what happened with your relationship? Because you were in a relationship. Mm -hmm. I was in a relationship. So we hadn't been dating all that long. And we were also pretty young. Like um, I had just turned 21. He was, I think, a year younger than I was. So to set the stage, like we were ignorant kids. um, And he had... I think in general, he wasn't the most equipped to be a kind, generous partner. So he flipped, he flipped a shit. 
Um, mm. <laughs> he mm. was, he was not kind. He kind of did everything wrong. Um, oh. he was very judgmental, accused me of ruining his life. Um, oh my God. Cheating on him. Yeah. Like the whole rigmarole, um, called me some lovely slurs and, mm. uh, it's funny, like, I think if I hadn't been diagnosed and we were just having a fight, I would have immediately broken up with him. Uh, but because I'd just been diagnosed and I'd internalized all of this garbage about about herpes and how horrible it was, I felt like I deserved it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I made just endless excuses for him treating me terribly. And like my college roommate would be like, you know, this you didn't mean to get herpes because we thought the, the, my assumption was that I had just had it and been asymptomatic and that I had put my partner at risk. And Mm -hmm. in the long run, I'll never know for sure how I got herpes, but it's far more likely that he transmitted it to me. Mm -hmm. Um, But I just took responsibility. I was like, I I had no idea. I'm so sorry. Like I I carried a whole bunch of guilt and just Mm -hmm. allowed him to treat me like crap. And my roommate, bless her, was like, this is an accident. Like, even if you did have herpes and even if you did expose him to it, you had no idea. You're very responsible in the ways that you know how to be. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't give him permission to be a horrible, abusive jerk. Took me a little while to figure that out for myself. Um, but yeah, that relationship did not last. And it's interesting. Like, that was such a horrible experience. And I felt so lucky that he was willing to be with me at all that when I started dating after he and I broke up and I started disclosing my status to new partners, like I was so shocked by how kind people were about it because I'd kind of gotten the worst possible reaction out of the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I was, it was really shocking when people were really kind and non-judgmental and curious about it. It was like, oh, this is, this might actually be all right. Like not everyone is going to be a horrible monster. And if people do react in that horrible way, that says far more about them than it does about me. But yeah, no, that first relationship was, was a hot mess to put it. Wow. Okay. So I recently, or maybe a few months ago, I did uh, Instagram, you know, STIs and dating. I have to tell you, it got so much attention. There are so Mm -hmm. many people struggling with how to disclose. So it sounds like you just were very, I'm so impressed that you were so confident just to go into like new relationships and be able to speak about it. Or what was it terrifying? Like, how did you go about it? It was petrifying in the beginning. Like it's, it's not something we know naturally how to have a conversation about. And so I really struggled with it at first. I just was so worried that people would think the worst of me, that people would be petrified of getting sick. Um, that I just, I was, I was expecting the worst and I've always been a fairly frank person. So for me, I never had the thought of, oh, maybe I just won't tell people. Like I, mm-hmm. I, my, my thought process was I have to do this. And so I, I didn't date for a while. And then um, I started doing online dating. I started seeing this guy who was very, very sweet and disclosed on our third date. And he hilariously already knew all of the statistics about STIs. He very sweetly was like, I actually just got over chlamydia. Like, <laughs> <laughs> That's and, awesome. Uh, I know. And it was, that was such a funny first disclosure to have happen because it was just not what I expected him to say. Wow. Um, and he actually wound up deciding like, because he'd just gotten over chlamydia and we were really just having a summer fling before I went back to college. He was like, honestly, I don't really feel comfortable taking the risk. And it was so, I was heartbroken and embarrassed, Mm -hmm. but at the Mm -hmm. same time, because he 
went about rejecting me so kindly and was very clear about why he was doing it. Um, it was a little easier for me to just kind of take it and get over it. Um, mm-hmm. But it was petrifying. And the other thing, so I, because I got it out of the way early, that was really my style. Um, the other Like thing how was, early, how early, like first conversations or like how, how soon? I eventually started to disclose pretty early. Like if I were going on a first date with someone, I would get it out of the way on the first date. Um, I thankfully I was in my senior year of college when I was kind of getting out of that terrible relationship and exploring dating for the first time. So mm-hmm in college, the boundaries of starting relationships have their own weird, different norms. So like you're, you, you hook up with someone, you like hang out with them. Like it's a lot more amorphous. So like, um, the first person who I started sleeping with after that, um, we were just friends. And so it came up in the context of like, I mentioned that I had herpes because we were friends and I was talking about, I don't even remember what I was talking about at the time. Um, but so that way it, he knew that I had herpes and had the, and the context was different. There was no pressure on him to decide if he was interested in me. He very carefully was just like, so how does that uh, impact your sex life? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I walked him through, like, I'm, I'm pursuing Valtrex, like a daily suppressive therapy. And I use condoms and dental dams are a thing. If that's something that my partner wants to use during oral sex. And he's like, Oh, okay, that's cool. And then a week later he was like, Hey, do you want to, do you want to, do you want to do this thing with me? Um, and we wound up sleeping together because he'd like, he'd had time to process it on his own. He didn't have to decide in that moment. And I wasn't disclosing with the purpose of hooking up with him. It was just like a friendly conversation. Mm-hmm. And like, once I had that, like friends with benefits, nice experience and was able to rediscover pleasure and, and my confidence, it made it a lot easier to then start disclosing to romantic partners intentionally Um, I wound up in a really serious relationship after that, where, uh, I met a guy at a party and he made a herpes joke. I talk about this in the TEDx talk. He like made a herpes joke to my face, not knowing I had herpes. And I was a little drunk, which I think helped, (laughs) but I was like to his face. I was like, that's not that funny because a lot of people have herpes, including me. And like, I could see his face go white and wow. Yeah, it was vivid. Like I still, I still remember it. Like it was yesterday. And he apologized, and then like very discreetly started googling herpes on his phone, not realizing I could see over his shoulder. Um, and we wound up dating for nine or ten months. Like I just after that, I started to write about herpes. So for the most part, when I found myself on a first date with someone, they already knew because they would Google me and kind of discover, oh, oh shit, like she has this blog where she writes about this, and so that weeded out a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think I just always had like this, I have this, I had this very strong moral compass of like, I have to do this and I'm horny enough that <laughs> I just like get <laughs> right. out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. So you mentioned Valtrex. I take that also suppressive therapy. I take it once a day, 500 milligrams. And my husband, Eric has been around me for over six years now. He's negative for herpes and HIV. And he feels comfortable enough. He's actually really surprised that he hasn't gotten anything by now. He's like, you know, I'm, you know, 52 years old. I'm surprised I don't have herpes, honestly, but he doesn't have it. Statistically. Yeah. So um, we're not concerned about it, but he's willing to take the risk, even though, you know, I'm, we don't use condoms. So I'm curious, like you talk about partners with taking your suppressive therapy, Mm -hmm. but also condoms. So do you have partners that have been okay with just the suppressive therapy? 
and no condoms or have they always wanted to use condoms? Yeah, uh, I've had, I, I'm, I'm lucky to have had quite a few partners <laughs> since getting <laughs> diagnosed. Um, and it really depends on the relationship. I've had partners who were perfectly comfortable not using condoms um, when I was on suppressive therapy. Um, and then when I've not been on it, uh, we're just very communicative like in those relationships, we were just super communicative about when was our last STI test? When was I last, have I, have I felt symptoms? Like we just, there's a lot of over communicating when, when I've chosen to take that risk with someone. And like you said, it's like that, that partner, that Mm -hmm. partner chooses to take the risk in an informed way. And, um, and usually to my knowledge, I've never transmitted to anybody, but it's also like, so many people do have herpes that the partners I've had who were willing to have like unprotected sex usually figured they had it and were asymptomatic or just just were not concerned. But it was always like a super informed decision. And I think mm-hmm. that's something that a lot of people who aren't STI positive kind of struggle to wrap their heads around. Like, why would you do that? Why would you take that risk? And it's like when you really like someone and care about someone or you're super into them and you're informed, it's not actually that and it's not that bonkers a choice to make Mm -hmm. and and the risk do you know the risk you I feel like you're going to be so much more um knowledgeable on H or on herpes than I am I know a lot but I don't know uh that much I know that there can be viral uh, shedding even if Mm -hmm. you're on suppressive therapy but truly what is the risk because we know it's skin to skin with herpes it's you know there doesn't need to be any mope and mucous membrane it's just skin to skin so even sometimes condoms don't prevent herpes transmission so um, yeah. Okay. So with suppressive therapy and let's say no condom, do yeah, you know what the risk is? It's pretty low. I haven't mm-hmm. looked at the statistics in a really long time, but I remember being obsessed with them when I was first diagnosed. And I think if you're on like a daily suppressive therapy, it's like a less than 1% chance. I think mm-hmm. depending on which strain mm-hmm. you have, I have genital HSB one, um, but it is super minimal and it, it really depends on your body and the way herpes expresses itself for you. Um, I've had herpes for seven years and I think I've only had three outbreaks, including Mm -hmm. that first one. And there are periods of time where I'm probably shedding as well, but the odds are in my favor, I would say, Mm -hmm. in terms of not posing a risk to someone else. Um, But it is like, it's, it's the kind of thing that whenever people ask me about it, I'm like, look, just talk to your doctor, think about how it expresses itself in your body, talk to your partner and just like, puzzle through it, put all the data down on the table and just think about what you want to do. Um, Mm -hmm. It's like, it's not as black and white of of a decision as people make it out to be. And I've had partners change their minds too. Like I've had partners who were super uh, concerned and, and took every possible preventative measure when we first started dating. And then over time, as they learned more about the virus or as they grew comfortable with the idea of it, loosened up and decided like this is actually we don't really need to do all of this like I'm mm-hmm. this is not there's not a, I don't know like they just become less paranoid as it becomes something they understand better right you know I had somebody who actually asked me and he was older than me too and he had dated a lot of women and he asked me if I had cooties that was his way of asking <laughs> if I had anything I'm like, boy, you're not going to like my answer. It's really mature. It's bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I have cooties. Thanks. That made me feel great. I know really. So you're diagnosed back when you're 21 and oh, 
quick question before that. Mm-hmm. Um, back when I was diagnosed, I felt like there was, well, we didn't have the internet. So I didn't have any source of really getting information other than going to a medical facility or trying to like privately talk to like some friends. Like I didn't really want to talk to anybody. It was really, or the person that I was with, but I really, it was hard to get information really truly back then. And so I remember there was a herpes hotline that I called mm. and I spoke to somebody and in that conversation, he told me that herpes could be transmitted from oral sex. Like somebody could have herpes on their mouth. Okay. So let's say I'm a guy and I have herpes on my mouth and I perform cunnilingus on a woman and I can transmit it to her. And now she's got genital herpes too. Mm -hmm. Is that true? Yeah. So you can have either HSV1 or HSV2 in either location in your body. Um, The difference between them is that it has to do, I believe, with where the virus just lives on your spine, but Mm -hmm. it can express itself in either location. Um, Usually it picks one. And so for me, I have genital HSV1. Um, And so if somebody has oral herpes and then they go down on you, you can contract genital herpes that way. Um, I think it's actually how a lot of folks are winding up getting diagnosed with genital HSV1 is because folks with oral herpes just don't often think of it or even understand that they have herpes um, because we call it cold sores. So mm-hmm. I, I think that's fair. I think that's actually very common. That was what the nurse told me when I was diagnosed was, isn't it great that all these women are getting cunnilingus now, but they don't realize that they're at risk of herpes as a result. Um, and I think people just don't really understand this, the, the risks of oral sex again, because our sex education system is crap. Um, right. But, uh, but yeah, that's, that's, that's how it works to my knowledge. And it is something that, um, that I think is worth talking about and raising awareness of. And like, there's just a lot of confusion as well around is HSV one always oral, um, because that's often where it expresses itself, but you can get either strain in either location. (laughs) Okay. So HSV one, I have always thought is on your mouth. And then, you know, I've always been proud to say, I don't have that on my mouth. I never have, you know, and I know that. I know people, I mean, how stupid, right? I know people that have uh, kids that have that on their mouth and obviously they've never had sex in Mm -hmm. any way. So it's just some kind of virus and it's a virus that you get. And sometimes the sun can bring it out or stress just like any other, just like the other type of herpes. So HSV1, I've always associated as oral herpes and then HSV2, I've always said as genital, but you just said that you have HSV1, but the genital version. So what is the difference between HSV1 and HSV2 in the genital region. What's the difference? I so I will caveat this by saying I'm not a medical uh, a medical professional, but um, right. from what I've heard, genital HSV2 tends to have a higher frequency of outbreaks and sometimes more severe outbreaks. Um, I think genital HSV2 has kind of a bad rap. Um, And I know that my experience with genital HSV1 has been pretty chill. Like I said, like I haven't Mm -hmm. had very frequent outbreaks. Um, So there can be a a difference in in expression of the virus, depending on what strain you have. Um, And like, there's some, like some folks can be a little cruel and nasty about it and say like, I have the good version of herpes if they have HSV1. So there's like a lot of stigma even within the herpes community around which strain you have, which is really unfortunate. Um, But yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird confusing virus. Like a lot of folks do assume the same thing that HSV1 is always oral, but um, there's a growing contingent of us who have HSV1 genitally, um, which is, which is a, it's such a, it's just such a weird virus. (laughs) I don't even know how else to say it. It's so strange. 
totally educating me on this. I had no idea. And I want to go back and find my paperwork and see what I have. I have no idea. I thought I just yeah. assumed I had two, um, but I don't know because I hardly ever have any issues with it. Maybe once every other year, there'll be something where, you know what it feels like? I wear G-strings. Again, this is many, totally, it's so funny because I'll talk to you and tell you this. And then later I'll listen to the podcast and go, oh my God, why did I say that? But I'm going <laughs> to say, like I wear thongs and then every once in a while when this happens, which is literally like maybe every other year, they'll feel a little uncomfortable and something doesn't feel right. And I'll keep trying mm -hmm. to shift it around. And I'm like, oh, it's that. Yep. <laughs> and something's then going on there. something's going on and it's kind of bugging. And, um, but for the most part, I don't have, you know, you can't see anything. That's what I've always told Eric. I said, there's really, yeah. I, that doesn't mean that you can't on other people, but I really can't even identify where it is. It might be a little bit more red in that spot. And you're right. It comes from the nerve. So typically it will go to the same place over and over. Mm -hmm. And that's my typical too. One time, one time I had it on my butt cheek. And I remember thinking, what the heck? That is fascinating information. And I'm sure a lot of people will definitely um, have more questions about that. Because I, yeah, I didn't realize, I never knew that it could be considered one down there and there might be a difference between one and two in mm -hmm. the genital region of course I think most people are really concerned about it being in that area because I think it feels like cold sores are pretty well accepted in fact there's a youtuber that I watched that she had you know it was very obvious on her face on her mouth while she was vlogging and she made a point of uh, explaining what it was and you know sorry if you don't like it it's worse for me than it is for you it's very painful but it comes out in times of stress and I can't help it and that's what it is so sorry if you don't like it you know and so I like oh. that she just you know was able to be really open and talk about it in that way okay so you're diagnosed you're dating and life is going on but at some point girl you decide to do a ted talk tell me how all of that by the way your ted talk has i just looked it up seven hundred and fifty-six thousand views i mean it's getting up to a million views at this point um how did that all come about yeah so i started blogging about herpes um i didn't really have any grand ambitions like i i knew that i wanted to help destigmatize the virus when i was diagnosed it was really hard to find other people talking publicly about their experience with herpes like there would be a lot of anonymous essays that people wrote for confessional websites and like the occasional feature in cosmo but it wasn't something that people wanted to own and so i all I really wanted was to have another person share their story with me, um, even if I was just reading about it online. So I wanted to help close that gap. I wanted to be a face for people who who were being diagnosed or just help help correct misinformation. So I started to write about it about two years after being diagnosed. And I wrote an essay for Women's Health Magazine's website, which was like the first big thing that I did for herpes. Um, and that went viral really quickly online because there was such a need for people to share their stories that uh, I was really shocked by how quickly it went viral online. But at the same time, I was like, there is, there is this need. So I wasn't, I was surprised, but not that surprised. I was more just shocked by how weird the internet is. Mm -hmm. um, and so I became like a, a weird mini internet celebrity for a while um, and became like the herpes girl who tells everyone she has herpes and like BuzzFeed wrote about me and the Daily Mail and Washington Post. And it was really strange. And I was maybe 22, 23 at that point. So nowhere wow. near like mature enough to understand what was going on. Uh. Um, it was really weird. But as a result, like a lot of folks, particularly young women in college, 
gravitated towards my writing. And the event that I was invited to was at TEDx Connecticut College. Like there's there's Big TED, which is coincidentally where I worked at the time. I was on the social media team of like TED headquarters. Wow. Um, and then, yeah, just like a funny coincidence um, and not related to how I wound up giving a TEDx talk at all, just like a weird twist. Um, and then TEDx events are like little independent events that communities put on. They get like training from TED and then um, and they will get like a license and then they'll make their own event. So I was invited to speak at TEDx Connecticut College by one of their organizers who had read my blog. And so I... I wrote the talk. Um, I definitely asked my coworkers at TED to help me prep. Uh, and I used everything that I knew from watching all these TED Talks at work to like write as good a talk as I possibly could. Um, and yeah, and I, I showed up, I gave the talk. I had the time of my life. Like I had always been quite shy and afraid of public speaking, but working at TED, you you learn how to, how to be a more effective public speaker. And I also really loved speaking to an audience of, of college students. I was pretty close to their age still at that point. And um, my boyfriend at the time was in college and he came with me and it was just really fun. Um, the audience was mostly like hungover college students because it was like 10 a.m. on a Saturday. <laughs> so, oh, wow. Uh, yeah. So they were very like, oh, we're talking about herpes. This is didn't expect this today. But it was a really, it was a really engaged audience and it was just, it was so much fun. And wow. then it, it went online on YouTube about a month later, I think. And uh, yeah, and it picked up steam really quickly. Like a bunch of little internet publications wrote it up. Upworthy made gifts, which was really cool and weird. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and like the, the TEDx team at work, um, I knew them, they were my colleagues. And so they knew that the talk was was coming online. And when it did, they were like, oh, thank God, this is actually good. So we can promote it. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Oh, yeah. my gosh. OK, so do you have to memorize this, your talk or do you have a teleprompter? No. So there's no teleprompter. Um, some people will bring note cards up on stage with them, but uh, I just memorized it. I didn't write like a word for word script. I more knew that I had points I wanted to hit. And then I had some like key paragraphs that I really practiced. So um, my conclusion, like my my last few paragraphs, I, I memorized as word for word as I could, but it's, it's a lot of prep work. Um, and you don't get paid to give a TEDx talk or a TED talk. So you're really doing it because you have a message that you want to share. Um, and so it's, yeah, I like, there were several months where I just paced back and forth on the rooftop of my apartment building, like performing the talk over and over and over to, to memorize it. Um, and so, yeah, but I, I was really worried that I would mess up on stage. Like I was petrified, but thankfully I just, I entered this like adrenaline do or die <laughs> brain space where I just like let it all out and did it on the stage. And, and thankfully people laughed at my jokes, which was really, <laughs> which was Oh, really definitely. Definitely. I had to give a keynote speech to the uh, AIDS drug assistance program in Washington, DC. I had to, I was asked to give a keynote speech and I know for six months ahead of time, I was having a lot of sleepless nights thinking about giving that speech. And thankfully I had notes right in front of me. And I know when I finally stood up there and was at the podium and looked out at the audience, I said, Oh, so this is what it looks like. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm okay now I can do this, you know? And it's like that really weird feeling like, um, I've got the audience in the palm of my hands. It, yes, they laughed at a couple things I said and boy, did it help. And it gave me that, you know, boost of confidence to keep going. And, um, you know, you look at people in the audience who are 
looking at you intently and that you feel like yeah. they're, they're, they're cheering you on with just their face. And it really helps. And you think I'm, I'm doing this. Yeah. I'm the same way. I was, I was very, very shy growing up and I don't even know at 21, I don't think I could have done that. I'm much older than you. And that was, that was uh really not easy for me. So bravo to you for, uh, for you. doing that. Yeah. It's amazing. You were also on girl code MTV's girl code. I saw <laughs> <Yes>. that online <laughs> that has a quite a few views as well over a half million. And then Guru Talk, you were on, and Style Like You, I saw that those had a lot of views. So you've been all over the internet. You are really like the, do you feel like you're like the herpes girl? Do you feel like that? I mean, is that okay to to say? Yeah. I used to feel like that. Yeah. Like between, like in those first, in that first two year period after going viral, I was just petrified of like missing an opportunity. I really felt Mm -hmm. like I had to do everything. I had to say yes to everything because I didn't want to lose the momentum and not because I just wanted attention or because I wanted to be famous, but because I felt such a responsibility to keep the conversation going. I was so shocked that people were listening and that they wanted to talk about herpes that I was like, anything, anything people invited me to do within reason, um, I, I said yes to. And so I did a ton of different interviews. Um, I like did a Skype interview with a North African, um, web channel like I did everything I could um and it did for a long time I did feel like the herpes girl when you googled my name I think if you still do it it'll suggest like Ella Dawson herpes as a complete thing it was really it was it was my brand for a while and like thankfully I I don't feel that way anymore there are so many more people talking about herpes now like the Instagram herpes community in particular is so badass and it's so satisfying to see these people who have like 30 40 50,000 followers and all they do is share facts about herpes like it's it's so validating to see people kind of taking taking the torch and and moving the conversation forward and like I wasn't the first person either to talk about herpes like there are a lot of folks like Adriel Dale or Janelle Marie Pierce like who were who were out there leading the conversation before me but I think for a chapter of time I I kind of was the standard bearer and then Mm -hmm. just because I was in my early 20s I was just so not mentally prepared to carry that responsibility as a leader, but also just to get that level of attention. So mm-hmm. after about two years of being everywhere, I kind of was like, oh God, I can't do this anymore. Like, I think the TEDx talk was one of the last things that I did before I, I called it retiring at the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like took a few years off mm-hmm. um, because it is like, it's very isolating and strange when you do have that level of scrutiny. And herpes is also, it's a huge community. Like people from every walk of life get herpes. It doesn't discriminate based on race or gender or political orientation. Like it's huge. And and everyone who has herpes, they don't agree on what we should do to get rid of stigma. Like there's some folks who are really passionate about investing in a vaccine or, or cure research. And there are some folks who are really focused on sex education and access to healthcare and some folks who are really interested in pop culture and changing uh, popular understanding of herpes. And like my piece of it is that I'm, I'm a relationships and sex writer. Like I really enjoy telling personal stories and exploring the complex emotions and, and the social aspect of herpes. So I really like talking about how do you disclose? How do you deal with this in relationships? How do you have better relationships in general? So I found my corner of the conversation that I really loved and had that I had something unique to offer 
for. Um, and I started to get a lot of um, criticism. Some of it was just harassment. Some of it was just genuine, thoughtful criticism saying like, why aren't you talking about all these other things? Like you have this huge platform. Why don't you do more to do X, Y, Z and raise money? And I was 24, 25 and just I was kind of like, I can't do this anymore. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. the expectations felt really high and hard for me to carry. And thankfully now there's so many more people in the space that you don't have to do everything. You can pick your specialty and, and give it everything you have. Um, And there are other folks who can, who can lead those parts of the the community, but it was really weird and Mm -hmm. very much an internet phenomenon, I think. Um, But yeah, no, I was the herpes girl for a while. And now I'm happy to just be sex and culture critic Ella Dawson, who also has herpes and talks about it sometimes. <laughs> and that's what you uh, that's what you do from home, because you said that you work from home now. So tell me more about that. Yeah, I, uh, I'm a sex and culture critic. I'm an author. I'm working on revising my first romance novel, which is really fun. Um, and yeah, and I am a 100% Patreon supported right now. I write about sex and relationships I have like an exclusive essay I share once or twice a month and um yeah and a lot of folks support me directly financially through that so I can keep writing and exploring and doing podcasts and slowly editing my book but I just I love to write about relationships and intimacy and sometimes that is sex sometimes that's sexual health sometimes that's mental health um I basically like to write about things that you're not supposed to talk about at the dinner table oh (laughs) I love that yeah that's I've found that as kind of my my theme it's a lot of stuff that people feel shame around and Um, that's what people come to me about they they are afraid to talk to anybody else about their concerns about you know obviously contracting HIV so I get a lot of that um I wanted can you explain more for people that don't know about Patreon I know it's pretty popular at this point but just can you explain like what it is for your Patreon and do you have tiers or how do you do it yeah, so Patreon is a, a website. It's kind of like a social network where you can directly pay a monthly subscription to creators who you really enjoy the work of. And mm-hmm. I, I found out about Patreon because I support musicians like Kate Nash and Amanda Palmer. And for a few bucks a month, um, you'll get different perks. So my patrons, um, they have a, I have a bunch of different tiers. You can do $3 a month, which is kind of like a tip um, and a general support. For $7 a month, you get access to all of my exclusive writing about relationships. Um, I wrote a micro memoir about herpes and abuse about that relationship I mentioned earlier. And that's Mm -hmm. like, when you sign up at the $7 level, you get that. And then all the other essays I've written. And then I have like an $11 where I'll send you a thank you note in the mail. And then I just have some that are like, are you rich? Give me $40. (laughs) (laughs) You don't get anything extra, but I'll appreciate it. Um, but yeah, it's it's a really nice community. Like I, I have monthly comment threads where all my patrons can discuss things. I'm trying to turn it into a place for conversation as opposed to me just asking people for money. And mm-hmm. I've become really good friends with a few of my patrons. I've become their patron. Uh, I do a lot of podcasts because a lot of my patrons have their own podcasts and will invite me on as a guest. So it's really, it's an interesting way to have like a direct relationship with creators and activists and writers who you admire in a way that still has boundaries and is just really fun. So I'm, I'm loving it. I I thought it would be really hokey and I've found it's, it's really fulfilling and and fun. And um, I'm thrilled to be able to do this full time now and not just work in social media, which was a day job and not my favorite. 
that's what you were doing before you decided to go full-time yeah. with your writing? Yeah. Okay. I'd, yeah. I'd worked in social for, I worked for Ted for five years and then did some consulting and worked at a startup. And eventually it just, it was very much a day job I did to make money and writing mm-hmm. was something I did because I loved it. And at this point I have enough of a platform that I decided to walk away from a day job that I did not like. And like, I think the pandemic has revealed for people the jobs that they just hate. Yep. <laughs> it's really You're hard to keep doing it. <laughs> living the dream for sure. And it's like, Eric always says, sell your, uh, what does he say? Something about selling your own sand, like sell the sand in your sandbox. Like you're, you're yeah. doing it. This is what you you're passionate about and you're able to make a living out of it. That's amazing. And if people want to find you on Patreon, they just look up your name, Ella Dawson, they should find you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That'll get you there. Or you can go to patreon.com slash bros and pros because I write pros about bros because I had some <laughs> terrible taste in romantic partners. Um, that's like my, that's my handle everywhere I am is, is at bros and pros. Okay, so that's what that meant. Okay, yes. <laughs> okay, wait, explain that a little bit more. So it's you writing about bros that you did not have good experiences with. Is that what that is? Kind of. I uh, huh? I dated, um, I think, over the four years of college and then a few years after graduating, I dated seven members of the same fraternity. Yay! <laughs> which, which I don't <laughs> recommend doing. Um, I ruined a lot of their friendships with each other. It was just like, it was very much a, a bad romantic comedy situation, but mm-hmm. um, I, I, somewhere along the line, I got the joke. It might've been from a friend. I don't remember how it was born, but bros and pros became my Twitter handle. Um, and then just <laughs> kind of inspired everything else I did online. But I do write a lot about past and present relationships um, very respectfully to those involved when possible. Um, but yeah, I write pros about bros. I love that you're so open about how many partners you have have had. I know for me online through YouTube, um, when I said that I had to like think about who I might have contracted HIV from, I said it didn't take me long before I figured out who it might have been from. And I have gotten so much negative of a response for that or for people saying, well, my God, how many people were you with? You know, you had to like go through your catalog. I mean, it was, you know, and I'd get a lot of hate for that. And I, and it, it makes me crazy because I mean, my gosh, we are human. This is why we are here on this earth. We've been here. We are here to reproduce. We have needs. Everybody has needs. And there's so much negativity about sex in general and how yeah. many partners you have speak on that because it makes me crazy yeah sex is fun like yep yep (laughs) this drives me insane it's like sex is fun as long as everyone is consenting and everybody is being honest about their sti status and what they're looking for like it it doesn't make you less of a person when you sleep with someone new Mm -hmm. and thankfully i think it's i'm hoping that the the whole slut shaming culture we have will change over time, but I know that it goes really strong in certain parts of the world. Um, but like, it doesn't even cross my mind anymore to be coy about how many people I've slept with because mm-hmm. it's the folks in my life don't care. Mm-hmm. And I forget that other people do, but it is something that when I first started writing about herpes um, and like when my writing about herpes left, like my own community and strangers began reading it, I definitely got shit from people being like, oh, you joke about being a slut. Oh, you write erotica. Like, of course you got herpes. You're such a slut. It's like, of course. Oh, of wow. Course. What a novel concept. Like I happen to get herpes from someone I actually was falling for and having a genuine relationship with it wasn't from the one night stands I had in college like and so what if it was 
right? Yeah, and who cares? Like there's exactly. no right way to get an STI. There's no respectable way to get it. Like it's, it's all part of the same slut shaming stereotyping of mm-hmm. people who get STIs. And that was something I thought a lot about when I first went viral, because I'm like a, I have a baby face. I'm from Connecticut. I'm a white girl. Like, I think a lot of journalists were like, oh, she's like the cute girl next door. And she got herpes. Like, isn't that shocking? Like, isn't that an interesting angle? Like, I think if I'd been a person of color or someone who had like more, more tattoos at the time, like if I'd been someone who looked edgier, I might not have even gone viral because it would have been like, ew, this person got herpes. Of course they did. I think the fact that I looked like this cute little safe girl next door, made it easier for people to listen to me in a messed up way. Um, Girl, you're preaching to the choir. Exactly. That's my story. Yep. Exactly. And then Mm -hmm. when they find out, oh, she ran her college's art and sexuality magazine and oh, she she's been published in all these erotica anthologies. Like now we hate her. Oh (laughs) my God. It's, it's yeah. Talk about, talk about the hate. Has it been really bad? Are you getting like cyber bullied or is it, is oh, it manageable I used to get I used to get crazy stuff um like in the beginning it would be people overstepping and oversharing and like people would send me photos of their genitals being like is this herpes wow um, and and then and people who would be like oh I never thought I would find love again but I'm in love with you that's just like weird stuff um and I think a lot of that was just lonely people who were really freaked out about herpes and kind of latched on to me mm-hmm. um but I also write about feminism and about relationships and abortion access and healthcare access and so um I started I, I wound up on the radar of a lot of like fringy crazy Republicans and folks we later would understand as the alt-right mm-hmm. um, people like the Infowars folks Milo Yiannopoulos like when they found me, they were thrilled because I kind of fit that stereotype of the crazy feminist. And they made YouTube videos about how like this feminist is proud that she has herpes, like really distorting what I was saying Mm. um, to make me sound like this insane social justice warrior who's going to spread diseases and all of this like horrific stuff. And they were making so much money off of the ads on those YouTube videos that I was kind of a cash cow target for them for a while. Mm -hmm. And that was, it was genuinely frightening. Like uh, I wasn't getting death threats, but in that, for that community online, it's fun for them to harass Mm -hmm. people. And so I did have a few months where I was just getting wave after wave of horrible Twitter messages and emails and people telling me that I should kill myself and like all the usual garbage. Um, I think the most vivid one for me was somebody saying, you know, we should brand you with a scarlet H um, so that everyone knows like violent, horrific stuff. Mm. And just as quickly as it started, it stopped. Like Mm. that's the weird thing about online harassment is one day you're a normal person. The next day you're being harassed by mobs of thousands of people. And then they forget (laughs) that you ever existed. Mm -hmm. So I haven't actually experienced harassment for the herpes stuff in like three or four years, I think. Um, because, and it's less of like my main beat. Like I write about a lot of other things now, but it's very strange. Um, but yeah, like, of course I've seen some shit. I like, I don't want to scare people. I don't want to scare people out of being open about their status. Like, I think the reason I attracted so much hatred was because I was politically active and, and talked a lot about feminism. And that's like, if you do that online, you're going to pay for it. Um, Mm -hmm. 
but but yeah I think some people to this day are just shocked by the idea that someone might publicly say I have herpes and I'm not ashamed of it um I think that really scares and confuses a lot of people who have absorbed the stigma and especially if you're a young woman who's identifying as herpes positive and is saying I still love and enjoy sex like mm-hmm. oh boy you're gonna ma- you're gonna make some people mad yep um, it's just part of the territory Uh, yeah as I said it's been much it's taken me five years to say anything online about it and I still don't like blurt it out but uh Mm -hmm. I'm more comfortable with it now and Eric never cared he was like you can say whatever you want online I don't care um but I know that I have you know I have a group for HIV positive women and I know that there's some you know several in the group that feel that it's harder to disclose about their herpes Mm -hmm. status than it is about HIV and I don't know if it's just because we feel like HIV is something that affects our immune system. So it's kind of more like a flu where you think mm. of herpes and you think of like a direct sore, like a sore on your genitals and ew, that's gross. And so I think for many of us, we've felt like that is, you know, a reason why it's been harder to disclose. But I mean, as I, I believe the statistic is like one out of five or one out of four in the US uh, has herpes, correct? Is it something around that? There are a few different stats because of the different strains, but two in three people in the world, I believe have HSV one. And that's, um, you can be asymptomatic, you can have an either location, but like, that's the strain I have. And that's two in three people like that's nuts. Um, I think it's either one in six or one in eight women have Mm -hmm. HSV. Um, I, I can't remember. I'm horrible with numbers and I'm also a little rusty, but it's worth Googling the statistics for folks at home because it is just, it's so strange to see those stats and then think about the people in your life and be like, do I know anyone who has ever talked about this with me? Mm-hmm. Um, because I guarantee there are people in your life who are herpes positive, if not you yourself. And when I first started talking about herpes, I, I had not met anyone to my knowledge who was herpes positive except for my ex-boyfriend. And as soon as I started talking about it, my uncle has it my dad gets cold sores. Mm-hmm. Um, my best friend from high school gets cold sores. Like my, my, several of my friends from college have genital herpes. And since then, like, since I've become internet famous, every time one of my friends gets diagnosed, they call me first. And it's yep. like, honestly, I think the majority of my friends probably have some stream of strain of herpes. Um, and I just happen to know because I'm the person everyone tells. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. It, I, I can, I can imagine. I <laughs> understand that for yeah. sure. And yeah, it is so, so common. I do know that if somebody has herpes, it increases their risk of HIV, like of contracting HIV by eight times. So I, and I believe in my case, that was probably what had happened. And so I do see a lot of correlation between uh, obviously you probably don't see many HIV positive people. You see a lot of people that are herpes positive, but um, a lot of the women that come to me, um, they typically have herpes also, because a lot of the times that's, that was the gateway and, um, it helped, mm. you know, get that virus into our bodies, unfortunately. So there is a correlation between having other STIs and getting, um, HIV, of course, HIV is still very, very rare, but, um, having herpes doesn't help, <laughs> unfortunately. So yeah. And like I've, I've connected with a few different HIV activists, uh, and it's, it's so interesting to see, like. I'll be DMing someone super famous for having HIV and they'll mention that they have herpes too. And like, Mm -hmm. they've either never talked about it or it's just not something they're known for. And it's so fascinating to me um, how common herpes is. And I am fascinated by that discrepancy that you mentioned of like, some folks are more comfortable being public about having HIV than they are about herpes. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's so, 
I've heard and I've heard like anecdotal stories from doctors about patients who are more upset by an her by a herpes diagnosis than an HIV diagnosis. Like mm-hmm. it's just so it's so fascinating to me where mm-hmm. the where that comes from and and why. Um, I, yeah, I just find it. It's yeah, it's fascinating. It is. <laughs> it is. I don't even know what to think of it. Well, I, I won't keep you forever, but I do want to ask you, of course, the big one, how do you suggest people disclose? Like, what do you feel? I know everybody's different, but what, what do you have as far as advice? Yeah, I think the number one thing is you don't have to frame it as a confession. I think a lot of people approach it as, oh God, I have to tell my partner something and how do I start this conversation? And they apologize and they radiate this anxiety and it becomes... I'm so sorry. I have to tell you something. I hope that you'll still want me. Like it's this really, they bring accidentally this very nervous, ashamed energy. And like, I used to do that. I'm not saying that from a place of judgment. I think it's the natural assumption, especially when you're still struggling with it, um, that you should be, that you should feel bad that you're having this conversation with your partner. The way that I try to frame it now and the way that I encourage folks to think about it is, okay, you're either dating this person or you're interested in them. Um, maybe it's romantic, maybe it's sexual, but that's exciting. And this person ideally, hopefully feels the same way. And you can enter the conversation with the energy of, hey, I really like you, or I really want to bone you. And <laughs> how do we how do we do this? Like, here's what I know about my body. Um, here was my last STI test. I tested positive for XYZ. Here are the ways in which I practice safer sex. Um, what about you? When was your last test? What should I know about you? What are your likes and dislikes? Like you can make it a more collaborative conversation and focus on how do we both have the most positive experience. And so your STI status is just one piece of that. It's one piece of having a conversation about consent and desire. And if you say to someone, I am so into you, I think about you all the time, I really want to take this step with you, you should know that I have herpes and these are the ways that we can prevent transmission and here's a little bit about the virus and I really like you. Like they might be more excited about the fact that you're super into them than they are worried about your status. And I, that's been borne out from my experience. Like if someone is really jazzed about me, they're usually looking for a reason to say yes, as opposed to a reason to say no. And sometimes you do need to give them some time and some space. Like some people do want to do their own research or talk to their doctor first and that's okay. Um, I know that I've had a lot of success disclosing via text message if that's more your style, but you're, you're, you're coming on to someone you're saying, I like you and Mm -hmm. make sure you don't lose sight of that. Um, you don't have to, you're not telling them that someone is dead. Like you're not delivering horrible news. You're sharing a bit about who you are so that they can be as excited about you as you are about them. That's my, I love that. That's great. I, where were you 25 years ago when I needed to hear that (laughs) seriously, girl, I swear. Cause that, that feeling of just it's rejection. It's the feeling of just are, am I going to be rejected for something that happens in my body that, and then it's it's totally, it's totally petrifying. Absolutely. I agree. Oh my gosh. Well, I just want to thank you. So you're such an eloquent speaker. I can't believe you're only 28. My gosh, (laughs) I'm going to take notes from you. You're just amazing. I just want to thank you so much for coming on my podcast and you will be enlightening so many people. And I, and I think I've 
talked about enough where everybody can find you because I want to make sure people know how to get to your Patreon and your Instagram and your Twitter. It's at bros and pros. Mm-hmm. And if all else fails, you can also just go to elladawson.com and you'll find everything you need there too. Perfect. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on my podcast again. Oh, it was today. my pleasure. I, just, I can't I'm believe so I got the TED Talk girl. I'm so excited. When I, <laughs> I told Eric, I said, you're never going to believe who said yes. And he was just like, I, well, first I said, guess who's going to be on my podcast? And he smiled and stood up real straight. And he goes, me? I said, no. <laughs> I know. I said, Ella Dawson, the one who did the TED talk. I was so excited. So, well, thank you so much again. And uh, yeah, let's stay in contact through our our social media and um, I'll continue to uh, share your stuff on my Instagram because I've definitely started to, uh, well, I changed my Instagram up a little while ago. I decided to make it less personal and I have now a personal Instagram and then I have my HIV one. So with my Mm -hmm. HIV one, I'm now promoting not only HIV information, but also herpes. Super happy about trying to provide more information about herpes as well. Awesome. So, we, need yeah. it. we need it out there. We do. We do. All right, Ella. Well, we'll see you online. Yeah, see you on Instagram. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me on. No problem. Thank you so much. All right. Have a good one. You too. Take care. Okay. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. I wish you all a fantastic week. Stay safe. Stay beautiful. See you next Monday. Don't forget, you can find me at Jennifer Vaughn HIV on Instagram. All my links are listed in the show description. Have a great one. Bye, guys.